Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 33 of the podcast, titled The Dark, written by myself. Thank you. Tomorrow the sun will set and will not rise again for 16 days. Earth days, that is. Today, the day before the last bit of twilight says goodbye, the men make their preparations. This prep is done by the low-ranking guys, skinny men with sharp faces like hard plastic, and is casually overseen by the platoon sergeant. They've done this prep about a million times. Supervision by their lieutenant isn't necessary. The young officer has more pressing matters to deal with anyway like deciding who will take the seeing pills. The day before the dark is always quiet. The enlisted men go about their duties like veteran stagehands prepping for a show. They move deftly, in silent collaboration, each man intuitively knowing what task follows the last. And there is always that superstition, like before an opening performance or a long voyage, that any joviality or too much optimism will invite bad luck. So they are serious. Private Cooper works quickly in this dying light his little head hung low and his brow tense, thinking only of his girl back home and how she is really no longer his girl and how he will likely never see her freckled face again. But, nevertheless, these are the memories he survives by, her heart-shaped face and her quiet voice and her dark hair. This is how Cooper endures the dark, conjuring memories. The duties for prepping for the dark are mostly menial, laborious stuff, sure, but it doesn't take an egghead to do them. The soldiers normally begin by placing pylons, six-foot poles with floodlights on their tips, around the perimeter of the base. Even in the last heat of twilight, this task is punishing, and the men assigned to it, including Private Cooper, remove their shirts and let their backs shine in the last natural light they'll see for some time. Then there's tending to the base's generators. Nicknamed Whoppers by the enlisted boys, these diesel-powered behemoths are as large as shipping containers, and, when in use, roar so loudly their maintenance crews must wear ear protection. These generators are the platoon's lifeline during the dark, and so the men working them display superstitious behavior that borders on ritualistic, tweaking the generator's hardware like supplicants paying oblations to a deity, moving slowly, delicately, caressing the machines like mechanical mystics. Once the whoppers are properly tended to, the men start inventory on the little stuff, Flashlights, flares, batteries for the flashlights, little LED panels that can light up a square acre of land like the desert at high noon, and really anything else that can provide some kind of luminance. They need these lights not just for their practical uses, but for their psychological benefits. The more sources of light the men have, the more comfortable they'll feel when the dark comes. Private Cooper carries three flashlights and a bandolier of batteries during the dark. Items used to fight an enemy without a body or a face or an ideal an enemy that cannot be defeated or placated, only tickled with little shafts of artificial light. The dark, mind you, is not like nighttime on Earth. There are no moons here, no urban light pollution, and the stars are blotted out by a curious atmospheric haze. The dark brings a darkness that is heavy and suffocating, that rolls in like a fuzzy blanket and slithers down the men's throats. It is a darkness that removes all physical dimension, like the black before the Big Bang. Yes, the more lights the men have, the better. Once inventory is finished, the men of 2nd Platoon take a breather. Faces red from exertion, they gather beneath the Chow Pavilion and smoke cigarettes. Ribbons of smoke curl into a sky the color of wet granite. 
The sun went below the horizon about a day and a half ago. Cooper remembers Sergeant Ash saying something weird when the sun made its final descent. Eyes on the fiery marble in the sky, Ash whispered under his breath, If I could, I'd reach out and make love to that sun. Cooper isn't sure what that meant. Now Private Cooper sucks on a cigarette and watches clouds gather on the horizon. Cooper has always thought the clouds on this planet look sick and angular, like stalactites. The men around him spit and puff and speak in low, mumbly tones. They're all nervous, dreading what's coming around the corner. It's in these moments of rest, in their downtime, that the men really feel the pressure. Checking his watch and moving out from under the pavilion, Sergeant Ash claps his hands like a dog owner and tells his men to hop back to work. Cigarettes are flicked and stomped and the men disperse like slow-moving cockroaches to their duties. As 2nd Platoon finishes the last of their preparations, namely making sure all of the base's pathways and doorways are marked with bright, reflective tape, civilian transports begin tearing into the sky, leaving jagged ropes of vapor in their wake. The men stop working for a moment and lift their heads to the sky, watching the ships hurtle through the atmosphere. These civilian transports, fat little shuttles with stubby wings, will ferry the farmers and miners and ecologists to the twilight region of the planet, and then, in another Earth day or so, to the sunny side of the globe. Civilians do not stay for the dark. Only soldiers do. Private Cooper, whose skinny body is bent over, taping a pathway to the latrines, drops his tape and stands to watch the transports fly by. He folds his knobby arms over his chest and cocks his head to the deep, iron-colored sky. The very last shuttle is zooming overhead. It's nothing but a speck, an inky punctuation mark, followed by a long spider's thread contrail. It's pretty high up, but its sound is close, a low rumble that seems almost apologetic, as if it's saying to the men, sorry, I wish you could come too. Cooper closes his eyes for a moment and imagines he's on one of those transports. Only this transport isn't heading for the sunny side of the planet, but for home. He imagines stepping out of the ship and meeting his girl right there on the tarmac. He can smell her, feel her. Opening his eyes, he finds himself back on base, the last quiet hum of the transport shuttles ringing in his ears. At the completion of their duties, the men douse their faces with lukewarm water from their canteens and groan in relief. Stomping back to the Chow Pavilion, their faces glazed with the tired satisfaction of laborers at day's end, the men of 2nd Platoon chuckle and joke quietly, their voices sounding gentle and small against the enormity of their environment and the coming darkness. Still, there is that growing pressure, the mounting anxiety in relation to the question, who will have to take the seeing pills? The soldiers stream under the Chow Pavilion and congregate around its long sheet metal tables where the poor schmucks on KP hand out the night's MREs. No real food on this planet, no cooks. Private Cooper squeezes between a couple heavyset specialists and tears open his MRE. Fettuccine tonight. The platoon struggles to eat at this particular chow time. Cooper watches his fellow soldiers stir and poke at their noodles, unable to gather the gumption to actually put anything in their mouth. Only one man eats with the regular intensity expected of a soldier, Sergeant Ash. The reason for this is obvious. He's precluded from having to take the seeing pills, one of the rare benefits of being a non-com. The men do not speak of the upcoming meeting or of the pills at all. It is an unspoken anxiety. To give name to it would mean to make it real. Instead, they speak of small things, day-to-day -day concerns, their gripes with women and girlfriends and wives back home, and of how they're worked too hard and paid too little. There's heat and pressure, 
an elephant in the room so large it warps space and time. Cooper smells the warm stink of his platoon mates, feels their fear which itself hangs in the air like an odor, and looks over their hunched shoulders to the western horizon. He knows that tomorrow, well, in 24 hours, there will be no light out there, save for a metallic strip of silver just above the tree line. He hates this planet, Private Cooper. He's been here too long. He landed with the first wave, was here even before the cartographers, and remained when the planet was found to be resource-rich. The Coalition insists on there being a military presence on all colonized planets. When the first civilians started to arrive, Cooper realized he was that presence. Eighteen months gone, and he has yet to be chosen for the seeing pills. Some might call that luck. Cooper would call it slow torture. Besides the dark, which Cooper still has yet to get used to, it's the planet's terrain he can't stand. Long swaths of marshlands buffeted by dense jungles, all impossible to navigate simply. Nothing simple here, nothing straightforward. Nature here is not a maternal force, but a trickster, a cloak-and-dagger charlatan. Even the very ground itself feels shifty and uneven, as if it's trying to pull something on you. There's no solidity on this planet, he thinks, no definition. The marshes and the mists and the vegetation all mingle and blend. The sky is never fully blue, but is always shifting in shades of color. Nothing is ever fully itself. Nothing is entirely what it should be. The only thing on this planet that goes all the way is, of course, the dark. Chow time is prolonged by nervous men pretending to eat. They dig around their plastic containers with sporks taken from their mess kits, stirring, poking, their faces locked in stiff, statuesque scowls. Jaws are clamped shut. No one is chewing. Sergeant Ash, licking the last of the Alfredo from his lips, notices this ploy at procrastination and stands, planting his fat hands on his hips. Okay, boys, he says in a kind of polite, conciliatory tone. I think it's about that time. Let's go. The men do not offer any real response to this. No, yes, sir. The only indication they've registered this order is how they crumple their MREs and stand slowly, with a great deal of labor, out of their bench seats. No one speaks. Not a word. They swallow hard on dry throats and trash their MREs and file quietly out of the Chow Pavilion and towards the HQ building, like mourners in a funeral procession. Sergeant Ash brings up the rear, running his fingers over his bald, caramel-colored head. He can't blame the men for their sorry-ass behavior. He knows the seeing pills are no joke. The light of the planet is now just a notch darker than twilight, the bluish-gray of dirty dishwater. As the men make their way to the HQ, their faces are flat and pale in the calm light. Serene and gentle, the low light reveals the planet in a plain, unromantic fashion. No more glamorizing, no more hiding. All detail springs forth starker now, more vivid, like looking at a computer monitor without the glare of sunlight. Cooper actually enjoys this brief moment before the dark this time when things seem to fully gather into themselves. Filing into the HQ for their final debrief before the dark, Cooper finds himself thinking of his last night back home, the night before he was shipped here. Eighteen months ago, and he can still smell it, hear it. Seeing it is harder. His big gray eyes scan the ground before him as he remembers. He remembers the darkness of his bedroom, the glowing strips of light coming through the windows and touching her skin her skin. He remembers, though he wishes he could remember better, the topography of her body curled against his, her curving, youthful fecundity. Too hot that night for covers, 
their naked skin touching fresh air. He remembers holding her, a being so smooth and delicate and perfect in formation that she felt sacred, like something in a museum he shouldn't be allowed to touch. He remembers the inexplicable comfort of that night, how he thought he could tell her anything, and he remembers the drumming of rain. Military shuttles roared through the storm, growling over his apartment, and he knew he'd be on one the next morning, but somehow he thought he might lie in that bed forever, holding her against the dark. Walking inside the HQ, a squat building made of vinyl and fiberglass siding with a roof as thin as aluminum foil, Cooper thinks maybe he should have killed himself that night, 18 months ago. Not in a sad, morose way, but just so his life might have ended with what he suspects will be its greatest moment of all, its climax. It's basically a sad classroom, the HQ. A white box with rows of collapsible chairs and intricate maps on the plastic walls. Foreign-looking maps, with never-ending archipelagos and impossibly large continents, some of them as large as these soldiers' entire home worlds. There are also grade school-like posters denoting base duties and SOP, and, in a far corner, an ominous black placard with yellow lettering lists the side effects of clopine dimethylxanthine, a.k.a. seeing pills. The list is long. The men of 2nd Platoon take their seats. The enclosed space magnifies their stench. Dirt, sweat, and stale aftershave bounce off the walls. They fold their arms and spread their legs and lean back in their rickety chairs. They look out the plexiglass windows and see the shadows of the base diffusing and mixing into a wide soup of deep gray. Sergeant Ash stands at the front of the room in casual parade rest, his bald head glowing under the fluorescent tubes. Even with the mounting anticipation, there is that cozy feeling of being indoors amongst people while darkness slowly gathers outside. Now the door to the HQ squeals open and the man of the hour steps inside. Second platoon's leader, their young first lieutenant, Jack O'Neilly. A scrawny man with a blonde crew cut, he holds a damp handkerchief against his tensed forehead, eyes wincing in pain. The soldiers and Sergeant Ash snap to attention. Shuffling to the front and center of the room, the lieutenant waves his platoon down with a limp gesture. They sit. Although his uniform is sharp and his hair finely combed, Cooper and the other soldiers clearly see their officer is in a piss-poor state, barely hanging on. There is a weariness that seeps from his red eyes and into his bones. His shoulders are hunched like a geriatrics. Sorry, the lieutenant says, folding his handkerchief and placing it in his pants pocket. I'm feeling a little under the weather. The lieutenant offers his sergeant a seat, and Ash obliges, falling into a chair on the front row. The young officer clears his throat, grabs his small chin, and looks down at the linoleum floor, thinking, seriously, almost like a clergyman deciding how best to begin a eulogy. His men look up at him with the vaguely sad, expressionless faces of those already resigned to their fate. This has never been easy. In fact, the process seems to only have gotten harder. Lieutenant O'Neilly is still considered fresh. He's only been on the planet six months, a third of the time Cooper has. But those 24 weeks have felt like an eternity. When the skinny officer first arrived on the swampy world, he was immediately made aware of two things. First, that he was deathly allergic to the fungal spores that blow in the planet's boggy breezes. And second, that he would have to assign a soldier to take a highly controversial drug, and he'd have to do it every 32 days. Sergeant Ash pulled him aside that first week and told him, frankly, no sugarcoating involved, that clopine was a nightmare drug, 
a brutal pill with psychoactive side effects that bordered on cruel and unusual. No soldier who took the pill returned to active duty. What? What's it for? The lieutenant asked. The sergeant sighed and wiped his lips. To see, sir. To see. Now the lieutenant knows exactly what ash meant. Clopine dimethylxanthine was created and is administered for one simple purpose, to allow the human eye to see in total darkness. Brainiacs over in naval intelligence discovered clopine could enhance the ability of the rods in the eye by nearly 800%. The early trials showed tremendous promise and, when finally approved for widespread use, the IMC found the drug immensely useful. Whether navigating subterranean environments, executing nighttime ambushes, or, as in this case, colonizing a planet with nights that are many Earth days long, clopine, a simple, cheap, tablet-form drug, could be utilized to great effect. And unlike night vision goggles or thermal imaging, you never had to worry about circuitry bugging out or getting frazzled by an EMP, a favorite weapon employed by the insurgents. It was considered a wonder drug until the side effects became known. First, the lieutenant says, looking up at his platoon, I just want to say nice job on prep today. Things look good. Now, remember, we have to go over the, to the farming region tomorrow and make sure all the UV lamps are on and in position. I need a team of uh, four to handle it. Any volunteers? Every hand in the room shoots up with staggering velocity. These soldiers aren't dumb. A task like this won't be given to someone on seeing pills. The poor bastard assigned to them has to remain on base at all times. The lieutenant sucks in his cheeks and rolls his bloodshot eyes. Wow, I had no idea this was such a coveted duty. All right. The lieutenant motions to the men sitting on the front row, turning his palms outward and cupping his fingers. You four, up front, you'll go. The chosen four smile and relax into their seats with the calm sedation of people who've just had a successful bowel movement. The rest of the soldiers lower their hands slowly, sadly, like wilting plants. Well, <coughs> the lieutenant says, coughing, we all know why we're here. He nods towards the windows, which show a quiet landscape made austere in the dying light. So why don't we just try to get it over with, yeah? The soldiers are quiet. They fidget in their seats and avoid eye contact with their superior. Sergeant Ash folds his arms. That being said, I just want to reiterate the benefits of being selected. You know, it's, it's really not all bad. You're in a position of utmost importance. If our power goes out from an EMP or a natural disaster, you'll be the only one capable of seeing. You'll have to lead us through the dark. This is why the pills are necessary. And, and the day the dark is over, you get to go immediately off-planet for a month of R&R, and an added bonus is put in your account. Pretty cushy, if you ask me. R&R? A soldier shouts from the back of the classroom. His voice is warbled with fear. They send you to the loony bin, sir. Yeah, that's some real R&R. Sergeant Ash turns around in his seat, leaning over to face the disruptive soldier. You're out of line, private, the sergeant says in his husky baritone. Keep your mouth shut. The outspoken soldier, Private Mason, who has a wrinkly red face like a scab, shakes his head. Just being honest, sergeant, thought maybe the LT could be too. The lieutenant runs his tongue along the inside of his lips and sucks his teeth. He's angry. I am being honest, private, 
the lieutenant responds in a snot-clogged voice. You will be under constant psyche evaluation, but that is just a precaution. Private Mason rolls his eyes. Oh yeah, got it. Yes, sir, a precaution. Outside it starts to rain. Those clouds Cooper saw on the horizon have made their way over the base and are emptying themselves. The soldiers turn their buzzed heads towards the windows. Beaded streaks of water, thick like snot, roll down the panes. Sounds like an audience is applauding on the paper-thin roof. All Cooper can think of is that night he spent with his girl, that last night when the rain came down in the dark. Okay, okay, the lieutenant says, pinching the bridge of his nose. Uh, enough beating around the bush. All right. Uh, okay, Private Anthony, you're on scene duty this time around. Second platoon stiffens and flickers with flashes of rodent-like movement. Eyes dart, postures shift, heads turn. The soldiers try to stifle their reactions, their ultimate relief, out of respect for poor Private Anthony, who sits still, nearly catatonic, in the center of the room. Anthony, a strong boy from a farming colony, who indeed has the traits of a farmer, dusty red hair, broad shoulders, a thick neck, and large clumsy eyes, frowns slightly and looks at the floor. He's still registering this new information. The gears are still turning in his big head. Private Anthony, the lieutenant says, taking a few steps forward. Did you hear me? Anthony raises his head, nodding slowly. Uh, yeah, lieutenant, I... I hear ya. But why? Why me, sir? Anthony asks, earnestly. The lieutenant flinches, wiggles his head. Hmm? Of everyone in 2nd Platoon, sir, why'd you, why'd you pick me this go-round? Are you questioning my orders, Private? Anthony tenses his brow. This is the most he's thought about something in a long time. No, not really, sir. I just, I just want to know why me. That's none of your concern, Anthony. You will report to the infirmary at 0730 tomorrow for administration of the pills. The farm boy swallows, thinks for a moment. No. The lieutenant bats his eyes in bewilderment. Excuse me? Sorry, sir, I'm not taking no pills that turn me crazy. Sergeant Ash hops out of his seat and turns his bulldog face on Private Anthony. That was a direct order from your superior, you little shit. Now smarten up, soldier. The rest of the platoon is silent leaning on the edges of their chairs. But Anthony is less tense than even his platoon mates. He's still trying to get this all straight. I, I know what the orders are, Sergeant, Anthony says, calmly, shrugging. But I'm not doing it. Sorry. Uh, Ash stutters. The sergeant, unsure how to proceed, looks back to his lieutenant, whose cheeks are flushing red with anger. How about a court-martial, Anthony? The lieutenant asks, flaring his nostrils. How'd you like that? Anthony grimaces. I, I wouldn't like that very much, sir, but I'd, I'd take it over the pills. And what if you're thrown in a military prison? You'd still take that over the pills? The room is quiet, but for the rain. The soldiers are frozen. Sir? Anthony asks. You're acting openly insubordinate to direct orders. You could do time for this. IMC dictates are very clear. Anthony is agitated now. His feet begin to bounce and his eyes roll around the room. I, I just don't understand why we keep uh, having to take it, sir. Anthony looks to his fellow soldiers for support. It makes us go, makes us go insane. First of all, the lieutenant says, his teeth gritted like an ape's. It doesn't make anyone go insane. Small hallucinations and visions are common, but... Small hallucinations? 
Anthony says, half laughing. Men have, have predicted the future on this shit. Remember Private Richards? Men have seen the past and, and dead relatives and other dimensions and shit, sir. And the effects never really go away, do they? Do they? God damn it, Anthony, the lieutenant growls. I'm ordering you to... If it's not so bad, then why don't you take him, lieutenant? Or what about Sarge here? It's not SOP for us... To hell with SOP, Anthony shouts, slapping his fat hands on his thighs. You don't take this shit because you know it messes you up. Sure, cloping helps you see in the dark, but it also helps you see other things, too. Things we aren't meant to see. Private Maxwell said he saw heaven. Remember that? Said he saw hell, too. Anthony swivels in his chair, arms out like a scarecrow, inviting his platoon mates to come to his aid. You guys remember how he screamed, don't you? Remember? The lieutenant quietly unholsters his sidearm, an old-fashioned gunpowder pistol, and lifts it up, aiming it directly at Anthony. The soldiers beside Anthony gasp and duck in their seats, moving out of the line of fire. Grunting in surprise, Sergeant Ash throws his hands up, fingers splayed open like a cowboy trying to calm a wild horse. Take it easy, Lieutenant, Ash says, moving to the lieutenant's side. Hold on. This private needs to be taken to the brig, Sergeant, the lieutenant says coolly, where tomorrow he'll have clopine administered by force. No! Anthony says, pushing his seat back. I won't take it. I won't. The lieutenant pulls the hammer back on his pistol. Sergeant, please detain Private Anthony. Sergeant Ash looks from his lieutenant to Anthony and back again. He sways on the balls of his feet like a nervous athlete before the starting gun. He's uncertain. Sir, Ash says, his voice wavering. Why don't we? Now, Sergeant. Now. Ash clenches his jaw and lowers his head. Begrudgingly, he starts ambling towards Anthony. All right, Private, Ash says, scooting sideways down the aisle of soldiers. Orders are orders. Come on. Anthony's eyes dart to the door of the HQ. His legs bend slightly, and he shifts his weight. He's going to make a break for it. The lieutenant notices this, spots the telegraphed motions, and smiles. You run now and that's desertion, boy, the lieutenant says, cruelly. I'll put a bullet in you without thinking twice. Sergeant Ash, now almost on top of Private Anthony, opens his thick arms like the mandibles of a beetle, ready to snag the private and tackle him to the ground. But Anthony, in a moment of pure instinct, ducks, jukes around the sergeant, sidesteps to the next aisle of chairs, and starts running for the door. God damn it! The lieutenant shouts, following the private in the sights of his pistol. He slips his finger in the trigger guard, ready to fire. Wait, wait! A voice shrieks. Jolting in surprise, both O'Neilly and Anthony turn as Private Cooper lunges out of his seat, throwing himself between Anthony and the lieutenant. I'll take the pills, Cooper says, out of breath. I'll take them. Twelve hours later, the sky is nearly black. A glowing embankment of bruised purple light floats just above the horizon, surrounded on all sides by deep night sky. Only eight more hours till full dark. The rainstorm passed and, in its wake, left the world polished with a fresh coat of dewy moisture. The corrugated steel structures of the base glitter, almost imperceptibly, under the wet film. Beyond the base, along the rim of the jungle, things already look like night. Crickets, or some variation of their species, chirp with their noisy rasp. Amphibians croak. The men of 2nd Platoon, quiet shadows, move up and down the base, tweaking lighting apparatuses, 
and checking and rechecking power lines and electrical units. Lieutenant O'Neilly watches the dark figures scrambling around through the windows in the infirmary, their ghosts, the soldiers, half-shrouded in mist and darkness. Five more hours, the lieutenant thinks. Five more before the lighting ceremonies, and three more after that, the dark begins. He clenches his teeth, fighting off a shiver. There's a sheepish knock on the infirmary door. Come in, the lieutenant shouts. The metal door squeaks open, and Private Cooper bobs inside, head hung, fingers threaded against his belly, as though he were a monk or something. He turns, faces the lieutenant, and snaps to attention. At ease, Cooper, the lieutenant says, eyes still looking out the window. Cooper drops his posture and looks around the room. He's never been in the infirmary before. It resembles basically every other building on base. White walls, burgundy linoleum floors, but there are cupboards here marked with those scary biohazard symbols and boxes of latex gloves and various tools. Pointy metal instruments hanging from nooks on the walls. There's also that spicy smell of antiseptic. In the corner of the room, sitting in a plastic chair beside what Cooper can only guess is an operating table, is 2nd Platoon's medic, Sergeant Lewis, his short body bent over a book, reading. He doesn't even look up at Cooper. O'Neilly catches Cooper eyeing Lewis and motions back to him with a thumb. Uh, Lewis is here to oversee the administration of the pills and to run some vitals on you. Nothing crazy. Cooper nods. Uh, yes, sir. Lewis doesn't move. O'Neilly turns from the window to face Cooper Foley. Look, Cooper, you don't have to do this. Anthony is going to get punished for his insubordination either way. Probably get demoted, maybe even do some time. I mean, in a way, you're rewarding him for his bad behavior. I, I understand, Cooper says, nodding. But you heard Anthony. He'd rather kill or be killed than take these pills. I figure this is better than having to deal with that, sir. O'Neilly sneezes, wipes his nose with the back of his palm, and nods. You're a good kid, Cooper. Know that I appreciate what you're doing. You've been here longer than anyone, so you know just how, how interesting these pills are. We're going to miss having you around here. Cooper nods, swallows. All right, Lewis, you lazy ass, the lieutenant says, turning to his medic. Let's get this kid the pills. Groaning, Lewis bookmarks his book and stands out of his chair, a miserable frown on his face. He's pretty old, Lewis, probably older than anyone else in 2nd Platoon, and doesn't mind displaying it. He waddles over to the cupboards, crouches down, and unlocks a padlocked cupboard door. Cooper watches as the medic rummages around in the dark cavity of the cupboard unceremoniously, as if searching for cooking ingredients. Moments later, the medic approaches Cooper, a small translucent baggie in his palm. Within the baggie is a single pill, dandelion yellow in color and perfectly circular in shape. Okay, kid, Lewis says in his gruff voice. I know you've been around this stuff before, but it's standard procedure that I tell you about all of its fun side effects and whatnot, understand? Cooper nods. Yes, sir. Lewis looks up at the ceiling, thinking. Okay, I had all this memorized. Uh, okay, uh... Lewis looks back down at Cooper. <clears throat> Clopine dimethylxanthine is an optical enhancing drug with its primary effects lasting 20 days or more and with a half-life of nearly 10 weeks, although many users experience effects lasting much longer. The effects of clopine come on within an hour or two and peak within 12. 
While on clopine, your eyes will be sensitive to light in any capacity, and it is recommended you wear tinted goggles while in the presence of any light, artificial or otherwise. In the first few days, you may feel nauseated, lightheaded, and slightly anxious. These feelings normally pass by the fourth day. Now Lewis sighs and scratches his stubbly chin with his knuckles. Okay, uh, here we go. <clears throat> Many clopine users experience slight alterations of their perceptions while on the drug. Reality distortion, minor hallucinations, visual and auditory, but mostly visual, are known to occur. Some of these events are minor, others are more pronounced. Most of these hallucinations are categorized as small tricks of light, movement in your periphery, and flickering orbs in the far distance. However, many experience more intense hallucinations, including seeing entities that do not exist, believing they are in completely novel environments, and even re-experiencing the past or memories. Re-experiencing memories? Like living in past events? Lewis pauses. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been known to occur. Cooper nods. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, sir. Go on. Lewis quickly finishes out the rest of his oration, telling Cooper to come to him or O'Neilly if he ever begins to feel the more acute side effects described, and closes by saying that some antipsychotic meds have been known to be helpful in severe cases. Finally, emptying the seeing pill into Cooper's palm, Lewis wishes him luck. The snotty lieutenant pats the private on the shoulder and says the same. Cooper, surprising both Lewis and his lieutenant, knocks the pill back without thought or hesitation, a wide smile growing on his lips like a junkie who's just gotten his fix. Thank you, he says, grinning ear to ear. He's not too worried about the hallucinations. In fact, he's excited. He's going to see his girl again. Going to hold her in the dark. Thank you all for listening. That was episode 33, titled The Dark, written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.